Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's uh, episode of Red Pill Your Healthcast. My name is Dr. Charlie Fagenholtz and here with everyone's favorite nurse practitioner, Lauren Johnson. And we have another guest this week. Seems like it's a theme that we're starting to get guests on this show and and uh, we've had some good feedback. So we have a very good guest today, a close friend of ours, has a lot of knowledge. And uh, Lauren, why don't you do the honors of introducing our guest for this week? Okay, so we are talking with Emily Morrow today. She is a functional nutrition therapy practitioner, and she is just a wealth of knowledge about blood chemistry. And I have learned a lot from her myself. She, I think she, that her course and her knowledge on blood work, I think is a great avenue for conventional healthcare providers to get into a more uh, functional space. Um, to it's really be able to see the body through uh, more optimal function. So we are very excited to chat with you today. Emily, tell me, like, how have lab ranges changed from where they were 40 years ago? Why are we seeing this? Why are, why are, why is everyone going to the doctor and saying, and they say your labs are normal? Yeah. I think that that's the biggest thing that we, are trying to get people to understand is that normal isn't optimal because when you think of blood work where it was years and years and years ago, they create those reference ranges based on statistical analysis. So normal equals average. And that's something that I think people need to really start to think about. So when they're looking at those reference ranges on their blood work, that is based upon the average health of our society. So as that population becomes more chronically ill, more diseased, as we see those numbers climb, those reference ranges are going to get more skewed. And unfortunately, now when you look, chronic disease is the leading cause of death and disability in the United States. It causes seven out of 10 deaths every single year. And so that's cardiovascular disease, arthritis, diabetes, asthma, cancer, COPD. Those are just some of the reported chronic illnesses. And that is the population that they're they're creating those reference ranges on. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just curious about this. So I Googled it earlier and recently they changed the testosterone reference for LabCorp, which who was surprised by this? When I was in practice a couple of years ago, I had young guys in their twenties with testosterone levels in two, in their 200 and 200s. Like it should be 600 or so. If, I mean, depending on which way you're looking at the hormones and they're saying two and 200, and that wasn't even totally outside the range. I mean, it wasn't even like a crazy number to see, but they changed it based off of this change was driven by the consistent consensus effort for accurate testosterone testing, which was endorsed by a group of professional associations, government agencies, and commercial entities in 2010. Um, and so then they went on to say they looked at, they evaluated 9,000 adult male patients in different geographic regions in the United States and Europe. Well, they're evaluating men that are that are not an optimal function. And so we're basing this lab range off of men that may not have optimal function. And to broaden that, I love this example that I've heard you say, um, tell me about the white blood cell range, because I've seen that in practice too. Mm -hmm. Even if you go back and search in PubMed research and you go back and you set the date to, let's say, 1974, and you're looking and you just search neutrophils, lymphocytes, white blood cells, they'll even say within those PubMed studies that that optimal range is around five to eight. And so you go back and look and that is in the literature. And nowadays they've broadened it even more where I think now 2.9 to 11 is their current established range on some labs. 2.9. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. 
And so <clears throat> I guess within that 2.9 to 11, and correct me if I'm wrong, they are basically giving the same reference range to a 20-year-old to someone who's 80 and has chronic illness. Is that correct? Yeah, because those reference ranges very rarely ever change when it comes to age. And if it is, yeah. they'll differentiate it. Like EGFR, creatinine, newborns and babies are going to have slightly lower creatinine levels just by nature. But for the most part, they're just looking at this big statistical group of people and creating this average. And when we know that, you know, even ideal is five and a half to seven and a half, if someone's sitting in the windows outside of that, it's not going to get flagged. No. And it's kind of the perfect example of common. Uh, They try to make you think that common is normal. Mm -hmm. And those two couldn't be further away from each other when it comes to health. Mm-hmm. So when we have a patient that comes up with a blood, a white blood cell count of three and they feel okay, they're a little tired, um, but the white blood cell count is normal. What would you say to them if they, if they have that low of a white blood cell count? So when we think about white blood cells, they lower in chronic cases that could be chronic immune dysfunction, chronic infections. And so my first thing before I even look at the rest of their labs, and I'll explain why in a second is your symptoms will tell a story. Do you experience fatigue? What are your energy levels? How is your sleep? How do you recover from workouts? These are just questions where you're gathering insight and information because the body tells a story, keeps the score. Then from there, they're pretty much always saying, yes, I always get sick. I don't feel good. I'm having to lean on coffee for energy. I drink four cups a day. I haven't felt good for a really long time. And the reason why I don't go straight to the other infection markers is because bugs are creative creatures. They like to hide in various organ systems in the body. They'll even embed themselves in cysts. Lyme bacteria is really great at doing this where they're undetectable by the bloodstream or they create biofilms around them. So you go to look at a neutrophil, lymphocyte, eosinophil, or basophil, and they're almost protected in these homes and barriers where they're not showing out of range in the bloodstream yet until you go in and break those barriers. And then you start to see that jump in eosinophils. They're now detectable by the bloodstream. Which I love that you bring that up because like you'll see somebody when they start addressing certain root causes, their lab work will change. You might see a jump in cholesterol, but we know that cholesterol is responding to those pathogens and cholesterol is not a bad thing, but it's more of an inflammatory. This is, this is the body rushing to help, um, which is looked at as a bad thing in conventional medicine. So, and chronic infection, I mean, that those, those rates are just skyrocketing um because we're more susceptible today than we ever have been before and why is that emfs vaccine all of it emfs 5g the stuff they're spraying in the skies our food is junk our soil is depleted we're malnourished a lot of people are drinking water that's got a bunch of junk in it the air in their homes not high quality it's it's honestly a combination of a lot of little things paired with the things that are sort of beyond our control in our environment yeah. I mean, we see that with like Lyme. Charlie, when did you say they, did they find Lyme somewhere? In the mummies. In mummies. And yep. so they found, they found, Lyme. They found spirochetes in mummies. And then like Lyme, Connecticut is when it first became a buzzword essentially. Uh, but it's, you know, <clears throat> it's been going, it, it's been in our society for a long time. Uh, so much beyond Lyme, Connecticut. Yeah. And so, but it's been around for a long time, but why is it just now? In the last 50, you know, 75 years being, being a more of an issue, it's because we, our bodies can't handle it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's more, more susceptible to it, t- it taking over. 
Well, and if you think about what you said with 5G, I can't remember the exact PubMed study, but they were saying that a lot of these Wi-Fi and EMFs can actually increase and drive the growth of Lyme in the body. Yeah. yeah. And it can increase mold 600%. Yeah, that's a big one. And think about these smart homes um, that have everything connected, like their lights and everything. And it's like, how much radiation is that? Are you you supposed to? Ah. And you said cholesterol. That's like a whole different combo. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) we should talk about cholesterol um, because that is a really, people think that cholesterol is like this, like I got to jump on it because they're so afraid of heart disease because heart disease is increasing and it is a major cause of death. And so what would you say with somebody with borderline high high cholesterol? I have completely, even in the past, I'd say four years, changed my viewpoint even more in the cholesterol conversation from what I learned from the holistic space, because the holistic space was still teaching to keep it around or less than 200, that 160 to 200. But the more labs I explored, especially when it came to overall optimal health and hormone balance, when you know that cholesterol is the backbone to those steroid hormones, I shifted that. Like, I really think cholesterol can go up to 240 based on age and gender. I think the LDL can go up to 140, 150 based on different circumstances. Those people tend to feel the best. And so when we have these cholesterol guidelines where eight of the nine doctors are on these high level pharmaceutical things that make money from a billion, multi-billion dollar industry, it just kind of makes you raise red flags where they're above 200. And it's getting flat and there's fear there and they want to write those prescription medications. But low cholesterol is worse, in my opinion. If you start seeing someone dip below that 160, LDL starts going too low. That's that's a worse response, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. And the people that feel better with higher cholesterol, well, I mean, it's good for your brain. It's good for your, your hormones. You need cholesterol for hormone production. It's not just, you know, cholesterol causing plaque in the arteries. Well, no, I mean, like if we have to look at the body as a whole and what other, what other things cholesterol causes um, or affects. Um, okay. So you would say it's okay to go a little higher, but what are other ways we could look at cholesterol that might help shine a brighter light on Whether that high number is actually a risk for heart disease, because this is something I was doing when I was practicing is using the NMR profile um, Mm -hmm. to look at the the size of the particles. And if the if you see if you want the particles big and fluffy um, is what I would used to say. And then the, the small, dense ones were more of an issue and that would be more likely to cause heart disease. Is that something that you would that you're familiar with? Yes. If we suspect that you can run particle size for the cholesterol markers, but also there's so many other heart markers you can look at. You can look at fibrinogen, you can look at D-dimer, you can look at the insulin markers because insulin is a huge driving factor for imbalances and looking at the full picture with homocysteine, are they methylating? CRP, highly sensitive. Those are all things that I think have to be factored in. And it's interesting too, because you very rarely hear about things like the risks of low very low density lipoprotein, VLDL. But I dove into this more and I've always been told, hey, you want it less than 15. Again, started looking at labs and spectrocells and other markers and symptoms. And if it's too low, they may not have enough choline. You, I, We both know how incredibly important choline is for the body. You address that choline and that VLDL starts to increase to a healthy range. Same thing with that triglycerides HDL ratio and seesaw pattern. HDL is known as the good cholesterol. Very rarely do you hear about 
the problems that can arise if it's too high. If you start seeing HDL creep up, triglycerides going down, that's an early detector for autoimmune disease. Yep. I was going to say HDL too high, autoimmune for sure. That is fascinating. And yeah, I love um, the heart component talking about homocysteine. Charlie, I know you like homocysteine to be at seven. I like below seven. I like above five, below seven generally. And Uh, how is that related to heart disease? Let's tell them. Well, that's methylation in a nutshell is homocysteine or it's really MTHFR. Um, But all that, like compared, we're talking about cholesterol, we have homocysteine, uh, Emily, you mentioned CRP, uh, fibrinogen, and I throw in LPA, I, I throw in lipoprotein A, and, and that's usually my heart scan way more than cholesterol ever is. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you think about it, it's, it's clotting. So running things like fibrinogen, which is a clotting factor marker is going to give you that really good example. And then even if that fibrinogen is high and people are at these higher risks for clots and heart disease, you have to ask why a lot of viral bacterial stuff like that's going to create cytokine storms and drive these fibrinogen markers higher. Yeah. Yeah. And back to Lauren, when you said homocysteine, if you have high homocysteine, you don't make good glutathione and glutathione's are master antioxidant. So then again, it goes back to antioxidant reduces inflammation. If you don't have enough of our master antioxidant, you're going to put down more cholesterol into the arteries to try to patch up like the pothole, so to speak, or the inflammation in the vessels. Um, so I, again, that's, those are my top four whenever I'm thinking heart disease or, or uh, uh, blood vessel health. And not, not cholesterol, which even Correct. the functional MD, some of the really big popular ones um, that are really well known, they will still go off of cholesterol and they want it even lower and lower because they're seeing it's still, all these heart attacks are still happening. So I, this statistic is from the paleo cardiologist, but like, I think at least half, 60 to 70% of, is from what I remember, 60, 70% of people who go to the ER with a heart attack have a normal LDL. And so it's like, why are we even looking at that? But then they just think, oh, we just need to lower it more. (laughs) That's what they think. Their response is it needs to go lower, but it's not that at all. It's that they're missing the mark completely. Wait, 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 wait. Western medicine missing the mark? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So- Talking about cholesterol, so you have a patient that has higher cholesterol, borderline, their, their liver enzymes are, because I mean, how, I've seen many women with borderline cholesterol, their glucose starting to get, get higher, their liver enzymes are a little high, maybe one uh, is a little bit higher, and then their vitamin D is low, and their thyroid starts being off. And so we start seeing this picture, but then they look all normal by conventional medicine or lab ranges. And so how is all of that connected? And what like what are some of the things that you would look at there to see if, what we can do to help this, this, this patient? Well, I remember when I was working with a functional med doctor, and he studied for years under Dr. Carizian, even who's really great at speaking to the thyroid and how it should be the first thing you should look at when you see that elevated cholesterol and LDL should be the thyroid. Now, what's really interesting about that is it takes a significant dip similar to the liver enzymes, significant dip in function about 25% before you start to see an actual shift in the thyroid markers. So then you have to go look at possibly some other clues within a lab panel. So I go to two other markers. I go to MCV and I go to calcium. MCV, we are seeing so, so 
like shifting in the upward end right now after the past few years, which is so fascinating to me, knowing how viruses impact the thyroid because MCV will elevate prematurely of hypothyroid. Same thing with calcium. Calcium will start to elevate prematurely before the thyroid markers ever go out of range. And that MCV will be high and a B12 folate won't address it. It's almost resistant to it. So you start to see those patterns. You go to liver enzymes, you start to see those off as well, which is huge for thyroid conversion, inactive to active. But that's the first thing you should look at when those cholesterol and LDL markers are high, because the liver also plays such an instrumental role in that thyroid function. Gosh, that's so, it's crazy how it's all so connected, but they just don't see it. Um, talk about vitamin D. Do you check for vitamin D? I do, but when it's low, there's so many secondary questions you have to ask and you can run the 25 OH form paired with the 125. You really want those in a one-to-one ratio. I tend to look at the full picture. Is there um, globulin normal? Is their bun normal? Are they making sufficient bile so that they can absorb their fat soluble vitamins? How are their kidneys doing? Where's creatinine? Where's EGFR? How are their liver markers? Are they low in total protein? Could there be H pylori that's disrupting that absorption? You can look back at the iron panel. If that's off, is there an imbalance in copper and vitamin A? You need vitamin A as a cofactor for vitamin D. And so I think that there's so many secondary questions that have to be asked versus, okay, their vitamin D is low, take vitamin D supplements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a question for you. So vitamin D is perfect example of when it's low, it might not be that you need more vitamin D. It's usually that it's uh, toxicity creates deficiency, right? Vitamin D lowers in the presence of massive inflammation, which is why everyone goes to the doctor. Everyone has vitamin D issues and they're just told here's a prescription vitamin D that's not absorbable. They have no idea about their vitamin D receptors. They have no idea about Epstein-Barr. They have none of this. Would you say that, um, what you see on blood work in general is that toxicity is creating massive deficiency in us. Vitamin D is low. You go look up at that neutrophil lymphocyte. You see the NLR ratio increasing. Neutrophils are high. Lymphocytes are low. Like you said, with Epstein-Barr virus, viruses clog those VDR receptors. No matter how much vitamin D you throw at it or cofactors, you're not going to absorb it. You need to clear out those VDR receptors. Rosemary is great. And then address the viral load. And then that usually comes from addressing the other systems. Are parasites driving the viral imbalance? Is it underlying bacterial infections? Is it mold? Is it EMF? Is it Wi-Fi? So yes, toxicity does create deficiency. Yeah, because I feel like Epstein-Barr and herpes family viruses clog that vitamin D receptor. When you don't have enough vitamin D, now you don't have enough nitric oxide. Now that's our internal defense mechanism against bacteria and parasites, especially. So now you're just set up for this ever- uh, this vicious circle of just chronic infection, which is why, you know, vitamin D T regulatory cell stuff of the immune system is, uh, the gold standard to regulate TH1 to 17 and all that. Uh, but again, it always comes back to if you don't address toxicity, it's just going to be a lifetime of supplements. I feel like. I agree. So, so interesting. I have another question for you. So um, when I studied blood work, I did functional medicine through Datis as well as, as you just mentioned, he loves the thyroid. Um, would you say that his ranges have also changed uh, functionally in the last probably five years? I haven't looked at what he's shifted or changed just since yeah. when I initially. More, more so yours, like yours compared to what he has taught through Apex and all that. I would say, yeah. I yeah. feel like just the more you look at labs things begin, you start to recognize 
when people feel really good and all their other functional labs look good, where is their blood work falling? And what does that look like? Versus when you see the patterns of a specific GI map, a Dutch test, a spectrocell, an HTMA, they're not feeling great. What does their blood work look like? What are those patterns? And so I feel like over time, if there's never going to be a perfect, this is the exact bottom limit and this is the exact upper limit. You really, with blood work, have to look at it from a full picture because someone could be perfectly healthy and have a TSH that's not in perfect optimal range. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of my question of like, at what point is it that we're going to be become so toxic that the ranges are just going to keep getting lower and lower and lower to be in functional range? Does that make sense? sense. Yeah, yeah. I think so. if you're in a general vicinity and you know if you're looking at optimal ranges and there's one to two markers off and they're barely off, like you're doing pretty good. But that's usually not what I see. I yeah. usually see anywhere from 14 to 45 markers out of optimal range. Right, right. And, and so let's talk more about markers. The question that I get all the time that I feel like you can just shed some really good light on is the difference between ferritin and iron and what those levels mean. Yeah. Yeah. So ferritin is the storage of iron. And what I find so interesting is because it's common, they'll always say, no, men can be in the 300s and 400s for ferritin. We see it all the time. It's still not optimal. When you run these other labs, you see that there's a toxin issue. There is an infection issue and ferritin is like CRP in acute phase protein. It's going to respond to underlying inflammation. Inflammation also drives disease and dysfunction. And so that iron around 80 to 130 is that range I like, but ferritin, ideally we're less than 100. Yeah. Yeah. So like that, that I was going to touch on that. So the iron is what I've been taught is like one is 85 to about 130, as you just said. But then I've seen ferritin in so many different programs talked about in so many different ranges. And so the one that I always stuck with, which uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts because you're so good at this, is the DABC program was teaching that it should be 40 to 80. And less than 40 is going to be like massive leaky gut, whereas more than 80 is going to be that accused phase reacting where it's like massive inflammation, which again, could be leaky gut as well, kind of thing, depending on the individual and stuff. Can you speak to those ranges a little bit? Yeah, I think that that's a solid range. We have 50 to 100 in our program. And I'm sure that that minor shift isn't going to make that huge of a deal of all the male blood works I've ever looked at. I don't think I've ever seen a man in 40 to 80 ever. Like it's Mm -hmm. usually around that 80 to 100 mark. And I'm like, you're doing good with that just because We also have to consider like y'all don't have a menstrual cycle. Like females are losing blood on a monthly basis. And a lot of foods are now fortified with iron. There's cast iron. Men love to grill, you know, grill, especially on football season. And that (laughs) can increase those iron stores. So I think we just are, I mean, I think that either of those you're going to do pretty good because even Mm -hmm. in that 50 to 100 or 40 to 80, there's very few when they're dealing with toxicity issues or infections fall within even those ranges. But like, I like that. ferritin at four, I've seen ferritin at two, but they're in a situation where they're like, I'm so pale. I'm so dizzy. I'm creating ice and iron's not helping me. I'm taking iron and it's not helping me. I'm like, well, no, your, your gut is leaky. There's no hydrochloric acid. You're showing patterns for vitamin C deficiency. Your neutrophils are in a neutropenia range. So you don't have enough copper. You need vitamin to load copper and cellulose to utilize iron, make it bioavailable. And then I'm like, let's run an HTMA and see what's coming out. Let's run a 
fatty analysis and see what your actual cellular levels of iron are, right? And so it's yep. interesting when you run and look at that full picture, they usually don't need iron unless yep. they're bottomed out in red blood cells, bottomed out in hemoglobin, bottomed out in hematocrit. And I always say, hey, have you had a ton of bleeding? Oh yeah, my menstrual cycles are so heavy. Okay, we probably and then need, and then still it's, let's do beef liver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so go, on. Go, go ahead, Lauren. Well, I was just going to say, so what would you tell somebody with that low ferritin who has all the symptoms would, what would be your starting point to address that? I think first you need vitamin C that's going to increase that non-heme iron in the gut. Number one. Um, my second thing is B vitamins. So candida will deplete a lot of your B vitamins feed off of them, but like riboflavin, for example, like that will impair iron absorption. A lot of people are actually low in B2. It's one of the most common deficiencies I see on spectra cells. It's also very common in women with migraines. What? Yeah, we were were saying the same thing. Migraines? Yes. Yes. And so when like you hear this and you know, even the liver is important for the gut and they're like, yeah, you know, I deal with high insulin. My blood sugar is wonky. I have pain over my right rib cage. I see their iron panels low. They deal with migraines. They're probably low in riboflavin. They're usually just low in nutrients in general, going back to toxicity creates deficiency. Um, but I start just thinking about how can we get them absorbing the nutrients from their food, warm lemon water, chewing their food well, lowering stress levels, digestive enzymes. That's sort of where I start. If they're severely iron anemic and they need support, a lot of foods rich in iron paired with vitamin C, avoiding dairy, dairy will inhibit the absorption of iron, calcium will. Um, so high calcium, phosphorus, that'll decrease iron absorption. So most of y'all's followers aren't like drinking soda, but that's a high phosphorus food that's going to lower iron absorption. But that's c- common in our society for people to have Coke, to have Dr. Pepper. It's also really common for kids. I had once had a child in the peds ICU who was severely anemic because all she drank was milk. Uh, and of course it was just the regular pasteurized whole milk, but all she drank was milk and she was so anemic that she had to be in the ICU. Um, and, and it's, it's, it does impact nutrient absorption when all you're drinking is milk. And so really net need to be especially also looking at what type of milk you're drinking and doing one that is not adulterated and pasteurized and all the things. Um, okay. So looking at nutrient absorption, Charlie, what were you going to ask? What I was going to say was uh, kind of piggybacking off of what she said, you know, B2, the like forgotten nutrient that makes your MTHFR actually run and it's, you know, eaten up by yeast and migraines and uh, cracked corners of your mouth and all that stuff. Um, people who go to sleep and they jerk themselves awake a lot of times, B2 deficiency. Uh, and you talked about all the cofactors of iron. You talked about copper. You talked about your B vitamins, talked about vitamin C, talked about hydrochloric acid, be able to digest your iron essentially and absorb your iron. Um, the one thing that maybe you can touch on is what about like if you have high iron and low ferritin or low iron, low ferritin or both high? Can you just talk a little bit about like what those patterns can mean for people who are listening? Yeah. So B12 deficiency can actually show up as high iron they could still be dealing with an iron anemic situation. So when we think of H. pylori or even parasites disrupting the absorption of B12, the second you correct a B12 deficiency, you'll you'll actually see that iron bottom out. That can happen often. Um, but I, I'd say a big thing that causes that high iron pattern is usually either heavy metals or viruses. That's like Virus. a common driver for that. 
Um, those are really, really, really common causes if it's not a conversion issue, a nutrient issue, or a B12 anemia situation. And then parasites. Parasites create inflammation in the body, and they feed off those ferritin stores. So you'll yep. tend to see that seesaw of iron creeping up from inflammation and ferritin bottoming out. Yeah, I was going to say, whenever iron is high, my first thought is virus, virus in the liver. Yeah. Um, and would you say that, uh, because I always see that uh, the most common cause in my practice of anemia are is parasites underlying generally, you'll see that ferritin bottom out and then over time, the iron will bottom out. But at first, it's going to rise because of the inflammation. It's like the acute phase reactant. I saw that with a lot of COVID labs, like when they went and got tested, their iron sort of went up because viruses depend on iron in order to efficiently replicate. Yeah. So it's going to increase. And then those viruses will basically attack those cells intracellularly and just wreak havoc. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're smart, they especially, if, especially if they're engineered. Creators. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I've, I have a, a question for you. So we all, we love blood work when you read it functionally, when you read it correctly, because blood work that is read wrong is maybe the biggest waste of time. I feel like, because it gives you no direction, no answers, all that. But when you read it from the way that you read it, it's a totally different experience and it's a totally different outcome because you're able to add like the better questions you ask, the better results you'll get. Right. We talked about, you talked about that in muscle testing and everything. Do you use any bioresonance or any frequency scans or anything uh, on top of blood work? Currently? No. Currently. Have you in, in the past? Have we? Yes. There are, I think a time and place for it. Absolutely. And I stopped using it when I started noticing the same trends coming up over and over and over again from the patterns of blood work. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I was not taught, I was not taught this, I learned it over time was to detect the clues of what the blood work will do when there's parasites, what it'll do when there's heavy metals, what it'll do when there's mold and mycotoxins, what it'll do when there's Lyme. So you see a bioresonance response. And when it's the same, if I can not run it and only run one test. That's what I tend to do. So for example, with mold, when you start to see low carbon dioxide, low specific gravity, elevated ESR, histamine responses, high leptin, high TGFB1, there's an irregularity in the zinc red blood cells, the ferritin's off. I'm like, there's mold. Mm -hmm. There's mold going on. Do you have brain fog? Yes. Is your blood sugar wonky? Yes. Then I know sort of how to tailor their approach. Because I think that blood work can also, yeah, there can be a lot of stuff going on, but it sort of shows you because it's an immediate response, what's the priority a little bit, mm -hmm. if you can read it from the right lens. That took me years to figure out. It took yeah. me years to figure out that your neutrophils may not be out of range and your lymphocytes may not be out of range, but if they're seesawing and your lymphocytes are increasing and neutrophils are decreasing, that's a very stubborn pattern that can either be autoimmune or underlying strep underlying staph, underlying Lyme disease, white blood cells are tanked at 3.0. It's been there for a really long time. And, and how about the emotional realm of health? How do you see, because you can see on blood work stress patterns, but essentially you won't be able to really pinpoint where the stress is. That's like where you would use your, just a history of asking the question, but it won't be like an NET type session or something where you get to like the pinpoint. Could you, could you find that in blood work or is that kind of just out of the realm of blood work? Sometimes, yes. So what's really fascinating is when I've seen eosinophils and basophils at zero, mm -hmm. similar to cholesterol, we never hear about that. We never hear about, hey, what happens if they're at zero? I find that that's often the anxiety and depression situations. Mm -hmm. 
begin to start asking questions because basophils will almost be recruited in those depressive type situations. I actually was on a call last night with someone and she was like, yep, my eosinophils and basophils are zero. And you can just see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you study Chinese medicine, you can look at the face, you can look at the tongue and you can know what's going on. I think that there's power to that. So yes, we have labs, but when you can see someone face to face, you can see it all over their face. And so I'm really big about let's go back in your history. Let's ask questions. One of the first questions I tend to ask people is when's the last time you felt really good Mm -hmm. and take me back to the beginning. What was your birth story? What was the relationship like with your parents? And you allow them to start talking and speaking to things. And they're like, wait a second. I had my tonsils removed when I was seven years old. Wait a second. I had strep throat growing up. Wait a second. I had pans and pandas tendencies. And you begin to have this map out in front of you of knowing where do we start? Because yes, they may currently be in an abusive situation and dealt with something five years ago, but what did they go through as a kid? Right. Neural pathways were created. Like I, I had a, a patient yesterday and, um, first thing I find chronic parasite immediately the first thing. But when I went to, uh, ask the body how to treat it, it went to emotional parasites in life and back to fatherhood, father stuff in childhood. And I've seen that if you don't go after that in the right order, you can put people into some crazy detox reactions. And so that's why I was wondering, is there anything, um, that you see on blood work that can be like, oh, this would be a resentment pattern. This would be a paralyzed will pattern. This would be a, a worry pattern. You know, I'm always trying to find yeah. some cool stuff like that because people like that would be pretty fascinating to look at blood yeah. work and be like, oh yeah, they have, um, they have paralyzed will from this age or whatever it is. That'd be pretty tight. I need to start really paying attention to it. What I will say is when I see a blood work of depleted, that's the state they're in. Yeah. Grief, stress, chronic anxiety, you run an HTMA and I mean, they're just low in everything. Mm-hmm. they're just bottomed out. And so with those individuals, you usually can't put them on a detox program, right? It's, let's work on the heart side of this. Let's ask questions. Let's establish the healing side of our heart because we are physical beings. We're spiritual beings and we're emotional beings. And so trying to fix a spiritual or emotional issue with a physical supplement, isn't going to work. Correct. And Correct. you'll know that it's not going to work. Typically those people, when you give them a supplement, they won't respond well. And they, yeah. and that is one that you'll, then you'll have the practitioner tell them, well, you need to feel better before you yeah. need to feel worse before you feel better. And it's like, no, you shouldn't be feeling that bad. Um, and if they aren't tolerating anything, then you're going to know we need to start working on your nervous system on emotions. But I do love with muscle testing, how you can see the priority and where it's going in the body, um, and kind of go from there and, and do that alongside of other things too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's cool how everyone can have their own form of practice and the specific type of client comes to them. It's almost like that's exactly what they need. Um, I don't shy away from the fact that a huge part of my practice is bringing my faith into it. And what's so incredibly cool that I've been able to witness over the past few years is when I'm just like, we were all given innate intelligence, intuitive wisdom. And so when I can just sit and pause and listen There have been countless times where I will know and feel and believe in my heart or with that person, what they need to do. Yeah. Mm. Right. Just like if you're with someone, you know, right now, I don't need to say anything. And I just need to sit here and listen. Like, you know, that, you know, that they might just need a hug right now. You know that, Hey, I need to bring this person a meal. Like our bodies were designed to know that because we're all connected. Every single one of us, every single one of us. And so, yeah, like if I'm sitting with this person, when you ask like, what's the priority, 
you, you, you sort of just know if you are still enough and you're quiet enough and you are led to that. And I think as a provider and as a person, a lot of it is trusting that and sitting still in that. Um, that is such a lost thing today, but as a provider, second guessing yourself or provider, not having the time to sit with the person and actually listen so that you can actually see the, the, the patterns of what you're hearing. Um, I think there's so much power in that and just learning to trust what you are feeling and acting on that and, and going with that first and then moving on to addressing, you know, whatever, um, the blood work or body is showing. Right. Because anybody, if they had someone across them talking about their history and all the grief and trauma, and they said, okay, we're going to go after these parasites with all these supplements right now. Like it wouldn't make sense. That's not something that would make sense. No, no, not at all. Um, man. So there's so much, I feel like we could get into more. We could get into what, what all have we, have we talked about vitamin D we've talked about cholesterol. We've talked about, Ferritin and iron. B12. Did we mention that? We mentioned that. And not, no, okay. Let's go over B12. So a lot of even functional MDs will just check a B12 and they'll say, hey, you're um, you're at a lower level. We, we like you to be in the upper third of the range and you're at a lower level and they'll supplement for that. But that's not really a good way of seeing how much B12 is in the body and what is actually being used by the body. Exactly. B12 is very, B vitamins across the board, running them in blood work is very inaccurate because you really want to see the cellular level. And so you can look at cellular tests to assess that. But beyond that, there's other markers that are better. So I really like the marker MMA. It shows up on a Dutch test as well. And when that starts elevating, that can start to pinpoint the body's not utilizing B12 properly. But even then I've seen where people are high in MMA and they supplement with B12 and it still does nothing because it's not a B12 problem. It's an intrinsic factor problem in the gut where they're not actually able to bind to that B12 and absorb it. Or they have H. pylori and it's just getting so which, which would go back to H. pylori essentially in the stomach. <laughs> an intrinsic factor. Yeah. Um, I have one for you. Can we like finally... Put to rest all the haters of iodine. I, how- I, know. I know. I don't know why everyone hates it. I'm a big fan of iodine, especially if you see the patterns on blood work or they have estrogen dominance. Do yeah. you check iodine and blood work though? I don't check it on blood work. No, but I was about to say, I don't think so. I look at free T4 and I look at their liver patterns. I look at their TSH. Yeah. And I mean, I also, and I'm curious y'all's thoughts on this. I still don't think it's the worst possible thing to use iodine in the right amounts and doses and types, even if there's antibodies, but that's just me. Correct. Oh, for sure. 100%. I'm just too scared to say it on Instagram. Uh, (laughs) You know, like I'm just too scared to tell people because some people will respond poorly and it's like, I can't, but there are people with Hashi that will 100% feel better once they start having some. Go ahead, Trevor. No, go ahead, Emily. I'll, I'll finish up after. When you know what drives thyroid resistance and autoimmune thyroid, and it's things like fungus, viruses, stress, and you know that you need enough iodine to make T4, which is then getting converted into T3, why would you not use it? Yeah. Yeah, that's similar to what I was going to say is one of the things that I've seen with all my Hashimoto's patients is 
the amount of TPO antibodies you have does not equate to how aggressive your autoimmune is by any means. Yes. You know, it's, it doesn't tell you how aggressive your T cells are back to what you were saying with, with, um, fungus and infections and stuff, you know, someone might have antibodies of 40 to 50 and feel awful. And then someone comes in off the street with barely any symptom with maybe a little low back pain. They have antibodies in the two thousands, you know? And so again, like does iodine help create TPO? Like it, it can, right. You know, it, it does, uh, do, uh, thyroid peroxidase, but again, you need iodine in order to function properly. And so I feel like a lot of times people get very scared off uh, or not scared off, but frightened with TPOs going high or, or starting off a little higher, but it's just the body shifting and the body's going to like uh, regulate over time. Uh, it's just not a good marker of how aggressive your autoimmune is going off just how many antibodies you have in, in my experience. Well, and, th- and iodine will increase TSH too. And so mm-hmm. conventional providers will see that and go, whoa, 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 this is the wrong way. And it's like, well, no, it's not that it's, that's your, we're increasing thyroid function. Um, so. Yeah. And, and I have seen like, you know, I, I had a patient who came in and her antibodies were, I think 16 or 1800. And after the first year of us seeing each other, um, she was feeling better and they did go and they got down to 60, which she was getting better. Her antibodies were going in, in that direction. So it's not like, you know, it, it can be an indicator of getting better as well, but it's not always the sole indicator is what I'm trying to get across of like, uh, how aggressive your autoimmune is. Yeah. I also tend to ask those people the questions like, is your skin dry? Do you struggle with sweating? Like those are really good signs and symptoms that they actually need iodine. Yeah, for sure. Are crusties in your eye. People wake up and they have crusties in their eye. Iodine deficiency. That's a good clinical pearl. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It's like correlating it with like those symptoms and actually knowing, connecting the dots there. And it's not just what you're seeing in blood work, but also what what they're experiencing. That will help them to feel confident in what they're doing. Do you do actual iodine or do you just say, here's some, to go take some kelp? Because some people like kelp. Like kelp? Kelp. Um, I can't say I use kelp very often. Usually Emily, I Emily's like, I don't use those vegetables. I'm just a carnivore. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't love kelp, but that's the, I've seen a lot of, of HTM providers actually recommend. Can I actually say, so I used to be, I used to eat like so many vegetables and I was talking to my friend about this the past six months, how I just stopped craving them. Like I just was like, you know what? I'm just not in the mood for vegetables right now. And I'm like outside of, I love basmati white rice outside of basmati white rice and my fingerling potatoes. Like I'm basically carnivore for the last six months and I feel great. My gut feels awesome. (laughs) Other phases of different things that we need, but yeah. So you use straight, you use um, iodine. I will. I like the brand Lugol's. I like when it's in different um, and I learned about the brand Vervita from you and yeah. Dr. Barry Warren, and I, I like their thyroid supplement. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. It's got the selenium in there and the rubidium, which helps like rubidium helps lower cortisol because usually it's cortisol issues a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and then they have the selenium in there, but then they don't have the tyrosine, but the tyrosine is in uh, inspire cell. And a lot of the supplements were made to like be taken together. So they didn't like overload all the different supplements, but it is definitely a good one. And I don't remember where I heard this from because iodine's always kind of grouped into the thyroid conversation, but 
back when I was dealing with TBIs, I've had seven concussions. And so you research like, what are the ways to heal the brain? I know soccer, snowboarding, all, all the accidents. Iodine is a nutrient that is extremely important. And if it's low, it's one of the most common causes of brain damage. Like taking iodine can actually prevent brain damage. Yeah. And it's so fascinating when you say that, um, the creator of Revita, Dr. Dick Versendahl, who was, you know, the biggest influence on my life from this perspective of my life, um, always said in the eighties, this is back, he'd say that everyone's deficient iodine and vitamin D and he would load people on those, load them. And, uh, a lot of supplement companies wouldn't, weren't happy with him because they thought it would, you know, again, like similar to being on Instagram today of like, you know, people report you or whatever it is. And he was just like, no, people are testing for a ton of iodine and vitamin D. And the thing he said about iodine was that he goes, the thyroid is in between the brain and the heart. It's the communication between the brain and the heart. And so the thyroid is the mother of all happiness and it protects the blood brain barrier. You know, and he said that in the eighties, like that's how many years ago? I believe it, but I always have not always pass when you're, when your eyes are open to all of this stuff in health, you start questioning and you start seeing they're pulling iodine out of everything. Why? Yeah. That's what I was going to bring up. Look at the fact that, do you know what is going to be one of the most profitable and most prescribed medications between 2030 and 2040 Alzheimer's drugs mm-hmm. brain. Mm. Yep. Like what's the agenda? Well, how, how much time you got on that one? How, you got just, a few more hours on here. Um, but I was gonna. I wanted to point out like why we are so iodine deficient today because I don't think we've actually discussed this on the podcast before. I have done a post on it, and I know Dr. Charlie has mentioned it probably in his membership. But people are so iodine deficient today because they used to. Well, one thing they used to use iodine. Um, I think to like soften the bread or whatever as a yeah. conditioner for the bread for flour, and they don't. They use bromine, which yeah, is bromine now which is the opposite of iodine and takes the place of iodine in the body. Yeah. And then we also have fluoride everywhere. Yeah. Um, I just got a message yesterday of a, of a mom who was told to give fluoride tablets to her 18 or to her like toddler to ingest because the toothpaste was not enough. You need to yeah. ingest this neurotoxin and anti-thyroid um, thing. I, I don't get it. But so there's fluoride in uh, the, the the paste that they put on kids and adults. Um, they, the fluoride medications and then in the water and then in the medications, like yeah. asthma medications, yep. I mean, it's everywhere. So there's fluoride, a lot of places, and there's so many anti-iodine, um, uh, what's the right, what's the word I'm looking for that, that will basically negate there- the presence of iodine in the body. Yeah, they're all, they're part of the periodic table halogens. And yes. so the larger molecules will displace the smaller. And so iodine is like the smallest halogen and you got chlorine, bromine, and fluoride is like the largest. And so again, you, you, you nail it. You, you got the fluoride toothpaste, you got fluoride medications, you got bromine in the breads and stuff on shelves. And then you got kids uh, enjoying the sun in their chlorine pools and all that type of stuff and chlorine in the drinking water and everything. And so uh, iodine is just getting has been getting beaten up for decades now. Well, then all the environmental exposures like cadmium, lead, methylmercury, these all interact with iodine. Yeah. And it's in everything. Like they put lead in babies' food and babies' toys. Like why? Yeah. And it just goes to show you, it's not just one thing. Like it's not, it's never just one thing. It's never just going to be this one exposure. I mean, usually there, I mean, there can be one exposure that's like the the tipping point, 
Um, sometimes it's vaccines, um, but <laughs> sometimes it's other things. And but usually it's a combination of it all. Yeah, it's de- definitely multifactorial. Um, it's just you know maybe not a smart idea just to directly inject a neurotoxin into your blood, but you know there's other stuff in the environment too. Yep. All right. I think that was a really good overview of blood work and like how I think I do want to say, you know, if you're a patient, you're like, I don't have access to somebody holistically around me. Um, I really want to ask for blood work. What do I ask my provider to get? Um, We don't have to list it here. Uh, Emily, I might have you list out some things that you would probably have somebody get um, because I do think there are ways that you can help yourself um, by looking at your own blood work and knowing, or, or and Emily has a mini course. Um, she has a blood chemistry course. She has a, the master level course that's um, more for like, it's for providers or for patients who really want to go deep. Um, but it's also, she also has a mini course that helps you just see the lab ranges and know what, how to interpret those lab ranges. And I think that is a really helpful tool. I think that her blood chemistry course was one of the, it was one of the things that really helped me as a conventional, conventionally trained provider to connect the dots. And so if you are looking for as a conventional provider or even as a holistic provider, you want to be able to interpret blood work in a better way and look at optimal function, I really recommend her course. Um, anything else that we did not go over? There's so much, but I feel like that this covered like the base of just getting people thinking like, hey, think differently about your labs. Yeah. Don't just look at a lab and it's a normal and be like, oh, it's fine. There's usually always an optimal range and always something you can look at in relation to other lab markers to help you interpret it better. Is there any last thing you want to say, Emily, before we go? Oh, man. Um, I would say if their provider won't run them because there's a very good chance that won't happen. You can take the specific codes. You can say, I want free T3 run. I want free T4 run. And there's a very good chance one of two things will happen. They won't run it. They'll give you a really hard time about it and they won't run it. Or you're going to get a really fancy super bill in the mail. This happened to me years ago when I asked them to run an iron panel and a thyroid panel. And I got a super bill in the mail for $800 because insurance is such a corrupt system. That's a whole different conversation. I'm sure y'all have covered. Yep. So yes, you can go run a basic CBC, CMP, vitamin D cholesterol panel with your doctor. But what I do love about this blood chem course. And one of the reasons I created it is it's a loophole of allowing health practitioners to go through their system where their doctor signs off on the orders so that we can order these things because otherwise they don't allow it because the system's kind of just not great. And so people could go to someone who is able to order through that platform and they can customize any panel and it ends up being cheaper. You can run a ton of markers, a ton of markers, so much cheaper. I will say this as I have experiences myself. I had really, we, when my husband, we had really good insurance and I had, I was like, Oh sure. I'll just run it through insurance. And it was so much more than if I would have just ordered it myself through um, the, the system that you have. Uh, it was so much more. And so you can see a whole lot through that system. And then working with one of her practitioners that has, um, that has taken the course and can, can look at blood work through that. That and that can be side by side with their current provider. Like I'm always about building a team. Everyone has a different specialty. Someone might specialize in the nervous system. Someone might specialize in bioresonance, but like having your blood work run from someone who knows what they're looking at, just to point the picture of, Hey, you, it might help for you to add in some digestive enzymes or globulins low, maybe smell vera juice. I think that's really insightful. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely takes a tribe, it takes a tribe to heal. And, um, 
That's for sure. All the all the tools you need in your toolbox. So it's just another phenomenal tool. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on here, Emily. This was a great conversation. I think people will at least start to question their blood work and look at it through a different lens. And if that is all we accomplished, then that is great. But hopefully you took away a few more tidbits from this great conversation. Awesome. Thanks for having me out. Thanks.